Hello, my name is Rick Tenenbaum, and I will be having a conversation with Kyle Lukoff for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans-identifying people. It is June 21st, 2017, and this is being recorded at Kyle's apartment in Brooklyn. Hi. Hi, library. Um, so to start off, can you tell me a little bit about your childhood? Uh, sure. It was a long time ago, which I feel very grateful about. Um, I'm not that old. I am 33, but childhood still feels really long ago, mostly because I was really unhappy during most of it, and I'm really happy now, so that feels like a pretty significant distance. Um, I was born in Illinois, like outside of Chicago, and my family lived in a really wealthy neighborhood of Illinois called Winnetka until I was five, and then the, our family business went bankrupt, and we lost all our money and had to move, and my parents decided to move us to a suburb uh, about 20 miles north of Seattle, um, ostensibly because we had some family out there, but I'm not really sure if that was the entire reason why. I don't know. Um, we had a nice house with a forest behind it, and I played in that a lot. But I was also really sad all the time. I don't know why. I mostly just liked books, and I didn't like people, so I just read a lot. Mm. Do you remember any of your favorite books from that time? Um, there were always books that I kept in my backpack for, like, weeks. I would forget to take them out of my backpack, so I would just end up reading them, like, 50 times on the bus ride home from school. Um, one of those books in middle school, I read Autobiography of a Face by Lucy Greeley, which was not really for middle schoolers, but that's okay. Um, I read It in the fifth grade by Stephen King, and that messed me up, and I loved it. Um, every Babysitter's Club book, until I got too old for them. Goosebumps, Boxcar Children, um, yeah, I just read, I read a lot of, you know, schlocky, mass market children's literature um, and then moved on to adult books pretty quickly because there really wasn't as large of a YA genre back then. Mm. And so how did you get introduced to these books? Which ones? Uh, these mainstream ones like the Stephen King, the Goosebumps. Oh like the, ki like the kids books? Mm -hmm. I, I have no idea. I have no idea why I picked up that first Babysitter's Club book but I was like you know, I was a third grade girl in 1993 and like a sixth grade girl in 1996. That's like the prime market for them. Um, I have no idea. I also became in sixth grade, I think, I became fixated on Helen Keller's autobiography and the autobiography of Ryan White for some reason, which seems telling now um, since I didn't know anything about AIDS back then, but I was obsessed with Ryan White. And I didn't know anything about how cool Helen Keller was as an adult, but I was obsessed with her childhood. Um, I don't know how I found books. My parents were big readers, so they always had books around the house. But I, I don't know, we went to the chain bookstore near, next to the grocery store, and I would always get a Babysitter's Club book and then read half of it on the five-minute drive home. <laughs> My mom got really mad at me for that all the time. I don't know, books were just kind of always there. They're a big part of my family's culture. So they're a big part of my life from like the day I was born, I think. Mm. We just stayed that way. 
did you ever discuss the books with your parents? Probably. I don't have a great memory of my childhood, probably because I was just really sad during it. Not because of, like, trauma or anything. I was just a really sad little kid. I don't know why. Um, we probably talked. Oh, I remember one time Dad was trying to figure out what we should make for Thanksgiving. And I remembered a specific recipe in one of the Babysitter's Club books. One of, like, the hundred that I had. And I ran to my room. I grabbed it and I opened it, like, right to the middle, right to the recipe. And I was like, let's have that for dinner or for Thanksgiving. And he was very impressed that I could just, like find it right away um did we talk about the books i read i don't know i don't know what else we would have talked about but also like you know the adventures of claudia and christy and marianne don't really make for a gripping conversation so i have no idea i do remember oh god i read this one goosebumps book where it's one where they turn into dogs and one of the kids um the main character keeps like growing hair everywhere and it turns out that he was injected with a serum s-e-r-u-m from this like mad scientist and i asked my mom what serum was but she thought i said semen and so she explained and i was very very confused for a very long time i was like why are they giving him that that's terrible <laughs> that didn't clear up for a really long time for me that was great I have that book in my library now, because um, why not? It doesn't say anything inappropriate. I just had no idea. Like, I must have just mispronounced it. I don't know. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So then you said after, uh, you used, in middle school, it sounds like you quickly moved on to adult books. Yeah, that's probably okay. true. Yeah. Do you remember any notable books from that time? Anything that really resonated with you that you read? I just remember reading Autobiography of a Face over and over and over and over again. Um, I'm sure if I thought harder, I could remember other books that I read in middle school. Um, but for some reason, that one really, really sticks with me. Mm -hmm. um, it's about this... It's written by a woman named Lucy Greeley, who was a well-known poet from... who. I think she was a professor at Sarah Lawrence, maybe, or maybe she just went to grad school there. Um, but she had a specific kind of cancer when she was young and went through a lot of treatment. For, she first was treated for the cancer, and then the rest of her life she was treated for um, the disfigurement of her face that came from the treatment. And I don't know why, but I just read that book dozens of times. Um, I don't know why. A lot of it was about her experience of like being in pain and being sick, um, being a child who couldn't relate to other children, um, which probably appealed to me, even though I was like healthy and stuff. Um, it was also just, as I recall, it was really beautifully written. Um, also, I just kept forgetting to take it out of my backpack, so I just kept reading it. I don't know what else I read in middle school. I know that I still read tons of Babysitter's Club books. Um, I read some weird book, I don't remember what it was called, it was, I got it from my school library, it was about some girl who turned into, she was like, she became like a supermodel, even though she wasn't that pretty, I don't know, I remember one scene where she got like groped by some guy, and that's like the main part that I remember from that book, because like I was in 7th or 8th grade, and that was like really risque. Mm. 
I remember carrying around Watership Down for days on end because it was the biggest book in the library and it made me look cool. Well, I thought it made me look cool. It definitely did not, but that was my logic at the time. Um, I just kind of read a lot of random stuff, like whatever I could get at the library, whatever I picked up at the bookstore, just lots of random books, some of which resonated for reasons that I have no idea why, others that I'm sure I've forgotten. Mm. A lot of Lynn Reed Banks. Um, like I read one book about this girl who lived on a kibbutz. I read The Indian in the Cupboard, which I feel bad about now, but I was, you know, eight years old. I don't, I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't know. I was just always reading, so it's kind of hard for me to remember which book out of The Endless Stream, which is true now. Like, if someone asks me what I've read lately that's good, I can't tell you because I've read ten books in the past two weeks. And I can't immediately pull one of them out of the lineup in my head. So, well, what kinds of books have you been reading, like, nowadays? I just said that I can't answer. No. <laughs> well, um, like no, it's fine. Okay. Genre. So, I read a lot of young adults still, partially because I hear a lot of chatter about different books on Twitter, either because they're really good or because they're really bad. And I'm curious about both ends of the spectrum. Um, I had to read every gay young adult novel for the past two years because I was on Stonewall, which means that now I don't want to read any gay young adult novels because I'm super sick of them, but I'm sure I'll get back to it once I've had some time away. Um, right now I'm in the middle of a collection of short stories by Margaret Atwood, which I really like. Um, but my main reading practice is either, uh, so I only get books from the library, the public library, and I will either read books that... I hear about that I want to read immediately because they seem important or just amazing or they're the newest book by my favorite author or they seem like immediately relevant or I just go to a bookstore or whatever and I see books that look good, I write them down and then a year later I, I put them into my list of books that I want to read which is very 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 long. So a new book that I add to my list might not get read for another year which I feel fine about. It means I'll never run out of books to read and that's great. Like I just read one called Calvin by Martine Levin. Oh, it's in my backpack. I can't grab it. I think it just came out a couple years ago, but it's been at the top of my list. And by the top of the list, I mean the oldest book on the list for a long time, and I finally got to it. Mm. I try to be fair in the order that I read books, but not always. What does fairness mean in the order that uh, you read? Fair means that I don't want to just skip to the end of the list and only read books that I just found out about. If a book sounded good a year ago, then I still want to read it, even though it's not new. Because mm. I also know that like it can be hard to, it's hard for backlist to find love. Like if a book isn't brand new or a bestseller, then it can just kind of slip away from people's like radar. And I like to, I like to show love for books that were like, that got attention three years ago, but have been completely forgotten about since then. Mm. That just seems really sad to me. So I often recommend books like that, too. So we'll definitely get around to um, your role on the Stonewall Book Commission later. Um, and so you said you hear about books on Twitter and mm -hmm. find out about new stuff. Um, what kinds of, like, who are you following on Twitter where you get these recommendations? Are they friends? Does it feel like a community on Twitter? No, I, I don't. I don't do Twitter very well, I don't do it very much, and I don't follow very many people, um, but 
I do follow enough people involved in like activism and social justice in children's literature that I kind of get the periphery of whatever latest issue is going on. Um, and yeah, it doesn't feel like a community to me, but I definitely know of people who don't know me, which is fine. Um, I could probably be more active, but I'm also scared too, because it's so public. I don't want to draw like a horde of angry trolls yelling at me for something. I don't know. Either something that like I deserve or something that's, that is like just because I'm trans or whatever. I don't know. Um, yeah. I don't know. I don't have my, I'm not much on Twitter. So I just kind of get the periphery of what people are talking about, sure. which is still a lot. Mm. Are there other ways in which you interact with the activist and social justice side of YA and children's lit? Mm. Right now, mostly in terms of the books that I write and the materials that I get from my library and promote and also how I get them. Um, I don't talk much. Like I don't, I don't like to put myself into discussions or debates, partially because it often takes me a really long time to really synthesize my stance on something and why I've arrived at that. Because I really want to examine like all of my biases, all of my baggage, what everyone else is saying, that new thing that just changed my mind. And that's not how Twitter works. Like, and that's also not how the current like think piece industry works like you need to have a very hot very immediate take like that um that you put out there and I hate I hate that because I can't I can't know that my opinion about something is solid unless I've spent a really long time like investigating it and writing a 1500 piece article about something that I just found out about isn't doesn't feel intellectually sound to me mm. um and that's part of why I don't get involved in these discussions because it takes me a really long time to think through like what everyone is saying and like everything that I think and everything that I have known and all of my like biases and prejudices and that mm -hmm. um but I am careful about what books that I buy from my library what books I recommend to kids and how I do that um the books that I write and who I choose and who I want to publish with and also just like conversations that I have not on the internet with people, um, with like friends or like friends of mine who are in publishing, friends of mine who are authors. Um, I would rather have like a long and messy conversation with one person than tweet at a total stranger because I think they're wrong or right even. Mm. Which isn't to say that that's wrong. Like I learn a lot from hot takes and from people yelling at each other online. Like it is a tremendously valuable way of it, it's, a, it's a tremendously valuable form of public discourse. It's just not one that I can engage in because of, I don't know, either anxiety or uncertainty or, yeah, a lot. Yeah. You also mentioned the anxiety and, like, worry about trolls coming after you. Oh, yeah. I've only, I've only gotten one total random comment from some, like, turf troll, uh, but I didn't like it. I don't want to get more. Do you feel like um, being trans, you have more of a spotlight on whatever words or whatever political message or stance you're taking I on social media? I wouldn't say more, but I would say that it attracts different attention. Like, I'm not going to get, I am not going to be attacked by 
like people who are racist like in that way like white privilege means that I can say that like I don't anyway but like I know that I'm not going to be the recipient of like racialized or racist hate um on the flip side I know that there's like trolls who like set up searches for certain words and then will go after someone who uses them so if I were to refer to like something trans specific then I know that I'm potentially opening myself up to a lot of like transphobic hatred which is also scary also like I'm nervous about anti-semitism online because that's a thing um and I know that I know that there are people whose like daily lives are formed by like the number of death threats I got that day and that sounds terrible and I would yeah. rather avoid that and yeah. I also wish that I wasn't so like timid but mm. I'm sure I won't have a choice eventually like once my books get published like I'm sure I'll get more attention that I won't like so I'll get used to it eventually I'm sure So I'll also come back to um, the books that you've written. Yeah. Um, but then hopping back on um, the uh, chronology timeline. Yes, sorry, chronology. <laughs> um, so then is, is there anything from like high school years um, and after middle school or even moving into college mm -hmm. um, that feels relevant to your development in terms of like how you view literature were you writing at that time um were you still reading pretty vigorously um i was always reading always 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 reading um i started to figure out that i was queer when i was like 15 or 16 and i started going to my school library to look for books and i went to the right dewey decimal section and my school library had like half a dozen books and they were all those like prefabricated issue books that publishers put out that are like gay marriage, pro or con, you know, where it's like different articles from both sides, quote unquote, of an issue. Mm. Um, and they were all really repetitive and not very interesting, but I still like devoured them. Um, also, when I was 16, I got hired at Barnes & Noble, which was great. I liked working way more than I liked school. Um, I was around books all day and I got to talk about books and no one made fun of me for knowing a lot about books because it was, you know, valuable. It let me, I mean, I was kind of a shit about it. Like, if I was at the, so if like there were two of us at the information desk and a customer was asking my coworker for help and they were like trying to find the book on the computer, if I knew what the book was I would just go and get it and bring it back which was really annoying but I was 16 and I didn't know how annoying I was being I thought I was being helpful but instead it was really really annoying and rude which is I was being annoying and rude I just didn't realize it at the time um but yeah getting hired at Barnes & Noble was huge I mean if it it if it weren't for that I don't know if I would be a librarian today um so I'm really grateful that my mom made me take that job when I wanted to keep working at the local uh taco chain called taco time mm -hmm. i worked there for a day and then barnes noble was like hey we're gonna hire you and i was like no i don't want you i'm fine i'll just stay here mom was like you certainly will not you're going to quit your job frying burritos i'm putting burritos in air quotes because they weren't really burritos and you're gonna work at barnes noble and that's it and it's like one of the only times i can remember her forcing me to do something or like deciding for me something like that mm -hmm. but i'm glad she did it was the right choice um i don't know uh, my mom got into a car accident when I was 15 and my 
dad was traveling for work and my brother was at college. So I spent more time than I might have otherwise at home. Like, not necessarily taking care of her, but like she couldn't really drive me places and I didn't have my license at that point. Um, and yeah, I don't remember a lot of those years because they were, though that I would say that that was fairly traumatizing because my mom was in like constant agony and I had to take care of her and like my dad was gone and my brother was gone. Um, so I just kind of dissociated as much as I could during high school. Um, which is probably part of why I liked having a job so much because it got me out of the house. Um, and I didn't really have a lot of friends. Um, and also I, you know, read endlessly, of course, because that's all I would do no matter what anyway. Um, yeah, I don't know. When you got into Barnes and Noble, did you have more access or did you seek out more queer literature? Not, oh, I don't know. I don't think I did. Um, I was really scared. There, there was the one bay, a, like a full bookshelf top to bottom is called a bay. Um, there was one bay of like gay slash lesbian, the, the gay and lesbian section, which was right across from the Christian inspiration section. Um, and I would like really conspicuously not look at that section and really conspicuously not look at whoever was looking at that section. Um, but I definitely read all, like I read a lot of gay subtext into things like Batman. So I would read tons of Batman instead of reading actually gay books because subtext is great. I love subtext. Um, yeah, I don't, I didn't really seek out much queer literature that I can remember, but I was still pretty new um and didn't like I was like new and scared and didn't really know how to I didn't even know how to start thinking about who I was um and in order to seek out literature I had to at least know to start thinking like the library books were safe because they were really like boring and factual and like point counterpoint um it was a lot scarier to stand like in public in front of like the gay and lesbian section of the bookstore that I worked at and like be seen looking at books that were like by queers and for queers. I did find a book in my bookstore called uh, A Parent's Guide to Preventing Homosexuality and I hid that one. I like sort of like stuffed it behind a bookshelf because I didn't want anyone to get it. There were like a few books like that in the Barnes and Noble that I worked for and it always made me really upset. Mm. And so, moving in past high school, mm. um, college, yes. College was great. I loved college. Um, so I knew that I wanted to live in New York City because, so my family is a bunch of Chicago Jews and we moved to north of Seattle where there were no Jews. So we were always very like culturally, um, like outside of everything around us. like. Where I was growing up, nobody knew, no one had ever met a Jew before. Like, we were the only Jews that anyone ever knew. Um, and there was a lot of, like, kind of crypto anti-Semitism just kind of floating around that people didn't even necessarily know was anti-Semitism. It's just like, you know, don't Jew me down on that. Like, man, you're such a fucking Jew. Like, that sort of thing was just everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, it was really scary. I think I've been shaped more by direct anti-Semitism than by homophobia or transphobia because I 
had experienced anti-Semitism since, like, kindergarten. Like, explicitly, like, directed anti-Semitism. Um, and also, like, my parents were, like, city people in the suburbs, and, like, we looked different from all of our Nordic neighbors. Um, and so I visited New York City for the first time when I was, like, 15 or so, and I just immediately felt like, this is it. This is where I belong. These are my people. Everyone looks like me. Everyone's grumpy like me. Um, people know what a bagel is. Um, there's like a synagogue on every corner like it felt like home and from like the first second I got to New York City I knew that I had to live here um, so when it came time to apply to colleges I only wanted to apply to New York City area colleges um, and then I ended up applying early decision to Barnard because I knew I had a better chance of getting in and I liked Barnard because it was in Manhattan as opposed to like Sarah Lawrence um, but it had its own kind of separate campus, unlike NYU. Um, and I just discovered feminism and was very excited about it. So I liked the idea of going to a women's college because I had no idea that I was trans. Um, so yeah, I applied early decision and got in. And that was one of the like happiest like days of my life. I think it was great. I was like, I'm going to be around other smart people and I'm going to be around other gay people. There's going to be Jews and I'm going to have bagels and egg creams and black and whites and it like realizing that I wanted to live in New York City felt very parallel to when I realized I was trans it's sort of like oh this is where I'm supposed to be this makes sense for who I am mm -hmm. um so yeah moved to New York took a lot of English and history classes I worked in the Barnard Library for a couple years just at the circulation desk um so I don't really count that as a library job because I didn't need any specific skills but it was still fun and around books and I still like books um, my freshman year roommate says that I'm the only person she knows who read for pleasure in college like we had all that reading and I would still read books just for fun because I don't know how not to like I don't actually I know that there are people who don't read and that's fine like I don't I don't think that reading is a moral value it's just the only thing that I like to do but also, I can't imagine what people do if they don't read. Like, I I just, I don't know how you move through a day if you don't always have a book. And I know that there's people who are very happy that way, and I just don't understand it. But it's also fine. A lot of my loved ones don't read, and they are as smart or smarter than I am. And that's fine. I just really like books. In college, did you find... Um, what, what was your social scene like? The people you were around? Um, I don't know. Mostly queer people. Um, I was also in this really nerdy literary society called Philo, the Philolexine Society, which I'll actually come back to when we get onto the books that I've written. Um, uh, my, like, junior year, sophomore, junior year, I made friends with some trans guys who didn't go to Barnard, so I started socializing sort of like outside of the campus scene. Um, I don't know, it, it's all, oh, I did become friends with this group of girls who were like a year ahead of me, which felt so old at the time. They were sophomores when I was a freshman, they were so mature. Um, I'm still friendly with them now, but we're not like close, but we lived together my sophomore year. Um, so much of college is just like hanging out. You know, like you're on campus, you stop by someone's room, you eat with them at the dining hall. Like it's sort of a made 
like a, a one-size-fits-all social scene. At least for me, it felt that way. Even though I didn't really get too close to anyone because I've never been very good at getting close to people like that. Um, it was still really fun. Like, I felt like I had community for the first time. Yeah. And I also was really involved in campus activism, like reproductive rights stuff, queer stuff. I was super busy, which in retrospect, I realized was a way of pretending like I wasn't like depressed and crazy and trans. Um, but it worked. I had a lot of fun. Then later it all came crashing down, but it was a good four years while it lasted. Do you remember any specific actions you took? Um, I was an abortion clinic ex- escort, so we would go down super early in the morning and wear like these little vests that said like escort or something. And there were like protesters who would harass people like walking to the clinic and so we would like walk next and be like hey I'm really sorry these people are super rude if you're looking for the clinic it's right up there like don't worry about them um Mm. like we just wanted to make people feel like they weren't alone or like they weren't you know just left to be yelled at by random like people telling them that they were like murdering their baby or something um that was great I loved doing that um I once did an activism project where we printed up little little cards, not cards, like little slips of paper about like this one specific clothing chain that had like bad like employment practices and I don't know. I really cared about retail clothing at the time and like fat phobia and stuff in a way that I still care about, but I don't buy new clothes, so I don't know. Um, and we like put them in the pockets of like jeans at the store and that was really great. I'm not going to say anything I don't know it's probably illegal I'm not sure um it was a long time ago so whatever statutes limitations are probably over um I organized a lot of events like speakers and panels and stuff um which my adult some my adult self is kind of embarrassed by some of the stuff that I did because I know better now politically but I was also learning and yeah we all we all learn as we get older Mm -hmm. um yeah, just a lot of, like, campus organizing, mostly. Mm-hmm. Are there any specific, um, I guess, political lessons that you learned uh, through Barnard, through having a queer friend group that you still uh, have today? The main, the main thing that I learned was from this uh, queer-ish message board called strapon.org. Have you heard about strapon? No, I haven't. Okay. Um, Queers of a certain age will be like, oh, strap on, yeah, yeah. Um, it was notorious for being like really mean, but also really smart, I think. I'm a, I didn't post that much. People didn't really know who I was, but I would post sometimes. Um, and strap on did a really great job of just teaching me how to be a person on the internet, like how to not insert myself in discussions where I wasn't necessary, um, how to actually shut the fuck up and listen to what people are saying instead of like trying to beat them in a conversation like one I think the one post that taught me more than like college was um it was in one of the closed there were like groups there were like sections of the board that were restricted to like either people of color or fat people or sex workers or trans people or whatever um and you could only post on them if you were you know of that identity group and in and you could read if you weren't but you weren't allowed to talk um and I think it was in the fat group where the the title of the post was like 10 steps for like it was like 10 steps for like being 
a good fat ally or something. Um, and every, all 10 steps were shut the fuck up and listen to what the fat person is telling you. Um, and obviously that's easily translatable to literally any other like marginalized identity, like just shut up and listen. And I remember reading that and I was like, but what if I want to, t oh, I should just shut up. And like, and for some reason, just seeing it repeated like that at like the tender age of 19 or 20, like really imprinted itself on me. And is a lot of how I conduct myself today. Like I'm talking a lot now because like you asked me to, I don't know. Um, but in general, I tend to listen a lot more than talk. Um, and that was really valuable. Um, yeah, Strap-on taught me a lot about just like how, how to actually like take in what people are saying and like not get defensive and not think that it's about me, even if it is about me, just to be like, oh yeah, I did, I did fuck up, okay. Let me think about the ways that I was wrong and the ways that I cannot do this again in the future. So that was, that was way, that was, I learned more from, in terms of like being a like ethical human who engages with other humans, I feel like I learned more from that part of the internet than I did from college. College taught me how to like write essays and stuff. I don't know. I'm sure that I owe my education more than I'm giving it credit for, but a lot of it I don't really remember as clearly. I'm not sure why. Um, would you like to get into at all? You said after those four years, um, the <laughs> keeping busy with activism and everything, and yeah. um, oh, came man. crashing down. Sure. Um, it actually like started to come crashing down my senior year, probably because I was like scared about leaving and starting the rest of my life um also so in the summer of 2000 and hang on two three i think it was the summer of 2004 so that makes sense probably um was when i realized that i was trans and i didn't want to be like i should i just get into that part because i was like it was like a light switch for me um if you want to talk about it. yeah yeah um so I met someone on Friendster, because it was the early 2000s, and we were both interested in, like, slap, like, fan fiction. Um, and I'd only recently discovered that I love fan fiction, because I'd said earlier that I loved, like, subtext in Batman comics, and I realized that fan fiction was taking subtext and making it text, and that made me really happy. And I ended up getting coffee with this guy at the tea lounge in Park Slope, which isn't there any longer. and. Um, he was trans, and I thought he was really cute. And until then, I thought I was a lesbian, so I was very confused, which is so cliche now. Um, but I didn't know that at the time. Um, so he was telling me about how he figured out he was trans because he realized that he wanted, that he could be a gay man, that he didn't have to be, like, a straight dude bro, that he could be, like, a pretty boy who wore, like, tight shirts and did his hair all nice and, like, slept with men. And at that that like exact moment I was like oh that's what I am fuck like I really didn't want to be trans because it just seemed like such a thing I'd have to go to the doctor I'd have to tell my parents and I'd have to do all this stuff and I just didn't want to it seemed like so hard so I spent the next like year convincing myself that I was making it up I just like went through really like complicated thought processes about how like I'm not really trans I just really want to be you know some people are actually transgender I just desperately want to be a boy but I'm not actually a boy uh 
which I've heard from other people is like they have the same process too. Like I don't, I'm not really trans. I just desperately want to be. Um, so I fought with myself for like a year. Uh, and like nine months after that like light switch, I started asking people to call me Kyle. And I picked the name Kyle because it was really common in my high school and all the Kyles that I knew in my high school were like very tall and blonde and like Aryan and muscular. And I was like, I'm none of these things. That's so funny. And I think part of me was like, if I picked a name that didn't feel like mine at all, it would convince me that I wasn't actually a guy. Like it was a way of like tricking myself into not being trans, but it didn't work. Um, also, I figured I would change my name to something else if I really transitioned. Um, but by the time I, I'd wanted to ask my parents if they would rename me. And by the time I was changing my name legally, they didn't want to. They are like, no, like, this is your decision. Like, we don't want any part of it. Um, so I was like, well, I've been Kyle for like a few years now. I may as well stick with it. Um, and now I guess it works. I tell kids that it rhymes with smile, which is cute. Um, and that works for me. But if I had known that I would be Kyle for the rest of my life, I probably would have picked a different, I would have definitely picked a different name, but that's fine. Most people don't pick their names. Um, so I started asking people to call me Kyle, and I started asking people to use male pronouns for me, but I was still at Barnard, and part of, like, all of my reading on Strap-On was saying that, like, hey, it's not actually okay for men to take resources for women, and it's not okay for men to force women to make room for them in that way, like, that's patriarchy. Um, and I was like, oh yeah, I shouldn't do that, I should just, I, like, I didn't, I wasn't gonna like pretend that I wasn't trans and I wanted people to treat me with respect but I didn't want to force a women's institution to change its policy to accommodate me because that felt like misogynist and it's still I that's still where I stand like you shouldn't have like you know if you come out halfway through or whatever that's fine like I don't think that trans men should be kicked out but I think that part of being like a decent like a good man and not like misogynist is to not like force institutions and resources dedicated to women to like re to like to like provide special accommodations in that way you know which i know isn't the most popular but i would rather be a feminist than I, like i would rather have that be my feminist practice than make women like accommodate me does that make sense mm -hmm. i don't know mm -hmm. so at that time how was it navigating barnard and coming out yeah i mean i was pretty i was like well known and relatively well liked so it was fine um i was treated with respect um as far as i recall like people were nice to me it was also like in 2005 2006 so there was like this flourishing of like I'm sure it was going on from before then, but I didn't know about it. There was, like, this, like, weird fetishization of trans men um, that I definitely benefited from. So that's kind of gross, but also real. Um, there was another thing. Oh, what was that? No, that's about it. Oh, and then also, okay, so my senior year, I people were mostly calling me Kyle and, like, he and him. Um, I wasn't transitioning yet. I was, like, wearing a binder every day. Um, and dressing pretty much exactly the same as I've always dressed, which is kind of just like boring jeans and t-shirts. 
Um, and by, like, the middle to the end of my senior year, I was having, like, nightly panic attacks where I was just, like, freaking out. But I didn't know what panic attacks were, and I didn't really have the language to describe them. I just knew that, like, several times a week I would be sobbing on the floor of my dorm room and I couldn't breathe. And I was like, this is probably fine. This is normal. Everyone does this. I'm totally fine. And I would mention it to a couple of friends and they're like, hey, maybe you should go see a therapist. And I was like, no, I'm fine. Like, I'm super okay, though. Um, I did go to see a campus therapist once. And she, oh, God, I don't even remember. I She she like asked me how I was doing and I think I started to cry and I said I was fine and I think I cried for the rest of the 45 minutes and it was like I'm fine now I went to therapy I'm all better it was great that was not the best time of my life not the worst that was coming later I mean it might get worse from here on I don't know um but uh oh so that so the end of my senior year I was slowly losing it but I didn't realize that at the time um and then, so when it really started to get fucked up was in Janu- January of 2007. So I'd been out of college for about six months. I started testosterone. Um, I never told my parents I was trans. I just slowly told them each step of the way, like, people are calling me Kyle now. People are calling me he and him now. I'm starting hormones. But I was never like, so I'm transgender. Like, I just kind of did it. Um, they weren't great for a while, but they're fine now. Um, I feel like there's so many different layers and I can't possibly talk about everything, but that's okay. Um, I, so I started T and it exas- it started to exacerbate an eating disorder that I would had, that I had had for pretty much my entire life, but never really, like, I was always kind of like semi-anorexic, like I counted calories and I met a lot of the clinical definitions for anorexia, but not enough of them. And I was never like... As far as I know, I was never, like, in any physical danger. Um, but I had, like, severe, like, body dysmorphia and, like, really fairly crippling attitudes towards food and my, like, caloric intake and, like, exercise. Um, and that's been around, for, like, some of my earliest memories are about that. Um, so that's always been, like, a thread running through, like, my entire childhood and adolescence and up till now, really. Um, but when I started testosterone, it really fucked with me because it ups your metabolism. So I was having to eat a lot more just to like kind of stay at the same level. Mm. And that freaked me out. Also, I was like newly out of college and like newly transitioning. And I started, I like got into a relationship with this guy that wasn't very good. And then I decided to apply to law school. So I got into law school in Boston. So like every... Like, there were so many major things in my life that were, like, either in flux or that I wasn't sure about that I, like, started, like, it just started to feel okay to be hungry. Like, I started to intentionally cultivate a feeling of, like, hunger and, like, not eating. Um, And then I was like, but I'm fine. I'm still going to go to law school and I'll get better somehow. And I super didn't. Um, And, like, by the time I got to Boston... I was like actively anorexic and my health was in significant danger. Um, I was eating, you know, a a dangerously low amount of calories every day intentionally. And if I ate more than a dangerously low amount, I would purge. Um, And I mean, I think all of that was like 
I was just like really fucked up and I wanted to stop being fucked up and I figured that the only way that I deserved help is if I was like actually sick. So I decided to make myself actually sick so that I could get help. Um, so I actually had a wonderful doctor at, I went to Northeastern for like a month for law school and I had a wonderful doctor on campus who like just like they immediately got that I was trans and anorexic and that that wasn't a thing. Like they just, it was like probably the most affirming health experience I've ever had was at that law school. It was just really lovely. Um, they got me an antidepressants, which was great. Um, and the doctor was really straightforward with me. Like at one point she like took my labs and like, so she like asked me what I was eating, what I'd eaten that day. She like did blood work, that sort of thing. And at one point I remember she called me and she said, so your labs indicate that you're at risk for sudden cardiac death. Uh, you need help. And I was like, that sounds bad. I don't, sudden cardiac death doesn't sound great. I don't know. Um, like to me, that just sounds like a bad thing, you know, like I was, but like, I also didn't really believe it. I, I was like, I'm actually fine though. Like I'm not actually going to die. Um, it's just my doctor says that I'm going to die, but I'm fine. Um, it was also really hard to find, to find help because at that point I was still legally female. Like I hadn't changed any of my documents or my name, but I was on testosterone and I passed as male most of the time. And I had good health insurance, but like I called this one like inter like national eating disorder service that has like clinics all over the country. And I explained to them like my deal. And she, she called me back the next day and she's like, well, you know, your insurance is really great, but unfortunately all of our services are for women and I was like I'm still legally a woman she's like yeah but like it still wouldn't work and I was like cool thanks um and then I went to see a psychiatrist who told me you know you're not eating enough and I was like I know that that's why I'm here buddy that's what this means like you're a specialist do I need to explain to you what this is um and so he kept suggesting places and he's like, oh, well, no, but that place only takes women and that place doesn't take men. That place takes men, but it's in Oklahoma. And I was like, I want to go to Oklahoma. Like, um, one therapist said that she wanted to get me to love myself. And I was like, can we focus on me like not dying first? And then we could get to the self-love part. Thanks. So I finally found a place in outside of Boston that would take me that like accepted men. Oh, no, but before that, actually, I went to an outpatient program specifically for queer people with, like, mental health issues. It was mostly people who were either, like, suicidal or with, like, addiction or whatever. Um, Do you remember what it was called? I don't. I couldn't show you where it is on a map-ish, but I don't remember what it was called. I'm sure I could find it if I, like, did some research, but I don't remember. I want to say it was, like, Rainbow House or something. It was attached to a hospital. Um, so it was like a satellite program of the hospital next door. And it was all just like group therapy, basically. Um, and at one point, this like, one of the like nurses weighed me. And she said, you know, she like had me take off my shoes, but I was still wearing like my clothes. And she said, you know, if you were in the eating disorder ward next door, I would make you wear a hospital gown for this. And I was like, wait, there's an eating disorder ward next door. Can I go there? Like, why, why am I not in that program instead? And she said, well, but it's really just for women. Like, you wouldn't feel comfortable there. And I was like, I'm literally starving to death. Like, um, And also, so we, so the whole, like, group would walk over to the hospital next door to get lunch in the cafeteria. And my lunch would be, you know, three slices of cucumber and a carrot stick. So, you know, something like that. 
Um, and then I had like a meeting with one of the directors of the program and he said like, what, what did you eat for lunch today? And I said, I had three slices of a cucumber and a carrot stick or, you know, whatever, like ridiculously small amount of food I had eaten. And he was like, uh-huh, good, good. That's a good start. And I was like, that is not a good start. Like I'm starving myself to death in front of you. Like, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. Um, and the other person, it was either him or the other person involved in the program said, you know, Kyle, our job isn't to make you eat. Our job is to get yourself our job is to get you to a place where you want to eat. And I was like, I'm literally starving myself right now. Like, you're not going to get me to want to eat by just, like, talking to me. Like, you actually need to give me consequences. And they're like, well, you're just not set up for that. I'm like, there's a fucking eating disorder wing next door. Just send me there. It was really, that wasn't great. Mm. Um, so finally, after, like, endless phone calls and referrals and blah, 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 I found a hospital call. I think it was called... Walden Behavioral Care, I think, uh, in Waltham, Massachusetts. And so first I went out there and they like did my labs, drew my blood, and they decided that I wasn't quite sick enough for inpatient, which I'm sure was accurate. But I did qualify for their outpatient program. Um, So every day, actually, a friend of mine, we're still friends now, she drove me every single day to the program. She says it was on her way to work. I don't know if I believe her, but she definitely saved my life which I really appreciate um I've told her this and she said that I like also helped her in like her own like fucked up stuff because she was coming off of like her own suicide attempt and helping me helped her help herself which is lovely Mm -hmm. so that program was well I didn't die it's nice like they because they were specifically for eating disorders they had like you know specific food requirements that they would kick you out if you didn't meet so I did that I was very compliant, um, but I wasn't allowed to tell anyone that I was trans. Um, the one of the I think the director of the program had like a meeting with me in his office where he closed his door, or it was like cracked open because he wasn't allowed to have it closed. And he said that like they discussed my case and decided that like I shouldn't talk about being trans in the therapy sessions and like the group therapy because it was really like an outside issue that wasn't related to me having an eating disorder. But it was like, how are you a doctor? Do you know anything about how people work? And like, also, it was all women except for me. Like, all the women in the program are talking about their husbands and their children and things that were like outside issues for me. Like, that's not related to my life, but I can't talk about the fact that I got a sex change and then stopped eating. Like, it's got to be related. But I like eventually, like, ate, I like gained enough weight to make sure that I was like physically safer and then they discharged me and then I was still crazy for a while because like duh um but I went back to therapy and like really 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 like slowly clawed my way back towards like some semblance of like health and it took a really long time but I would say that I am there now which is great it was I mean this was in November is that true in November of this year I will have, it will be 10 years since I was discharged from the program, so I'm still, like, I still say that I'm in recovery because I know that that's never something that I won't have, like, I will always have, I will always have anorexic impulses and leanings, um, but I don't think that there's much that could make me relapse, like, I'm pretty fine which is great. Congratulations. Thank you.
well, that was a long time. Were you still working through law school at that time? Oh, no, no, no. I dropped out after a month. It turns out that you can't really do your reading if you're, like, starving. I mean, I'm sure some people can. I couldn't. Um, I, so I took medical leave, and I could have gone back the next year, but I was like, you know, you tried to kill me once. I'm not going to give you a second chance. And I also realized that I didn't want to be a lawyer. Like, I didn't want to spend all of my time working. Um, I wanted to, like, have fun and go out to bars and, like, have, you know, casual dates with people and not because like I realized that when I was in college I wanted to be busy all the time so that I wouldn't have to have feelings or like think about myself and then once I realized that like I could be like a functioning gay man in New York City then I didn't want to work all the time I wanted to have fun um and law school isn't great if you want to have fun so I dropped out and then I got a job working for a buddy of mine we're not friends anymore but I worked for his like dad's company and then I hated that so I went back to Barnes and Noble in the summer of 2008 and then I worked at Barnes and Noble until I got into library school and then I became a librarian so it was like library uh, bookstore college library and I still worked at Barnes and Noble during the summers and stuff um, and then law school that other job bookstore library so I've been pretty much just working with books and people since I was 16. Mm. And where did you get your uh, master's in library science? Queens College. It was affordable and I got through the program really quickly, mm. which is nice. Uh, one question on the um, anorexia mm -hmm. and so, because that was, seems like it really, really flared up um, when you started taking tea. Yeah. Um, was your body image you were after or that you desired, do you feel like that was related to gender presentation and a reflection? Um, funnily enough, if you read my article in the 2010 book Gender Outlaws, edited by Kate Bornstein and S. Bear Bergman, you can find my essay entitled Taking Up Space. Sorry, that's just like an advertisement. Um, I wrote like a whole article about that. Like it's all like layered and complicated and there's no like one easy answer. But like... Yeah, I definitely wanted to, like, not have, like, curves. But I also wanted to not exist in the first place, so... Those two things are intimately related. Um, I got much more comfortable gaining weight once I presented as male. Um, probably also related to, like, misogyny and ideas of, like, what kinds of female bodies are acceptable in public. Um, but also, a lot of my recovery I owe to, um, like, fat politics and fat activism. Like, I started, like, so the friend who drove me to and from the hospital every day is fat. And she, like, one of her, she's, like, really involved in fat politics and fat community and fat activism. And I didn't really know that was a thing until I met her. Um, and just hearing her talk about, like, fat stuff, like made me real introduced me to the concept of that introduced me to that concept basically and so once I like moved back to New York City from Boston I started like reading lots of blogs by like fat bloggers and reading about um like fat phobia and like not body positivity but specifically like fat phobia and fat activism um and fat liberation and that actually helped me a lot um and again like I didn't talk too much because I 
wasn't fat and I didn't want to like say hey look at me pay attention to me but I also like did want to but I also learned a lot and like gained a lot of valuable tools for thinking about my own body um mm. hopefully not by taking re- I mean I can't I didn't take those resources from it. they're just on the internet I just read them too um so yeah I would say a combination of like transitioning not hating myself and not wanting to die and also discovering like fat liberation is what helped me like figure out how to have a body which I mean, we're all still figuring out I'm still figuring it out um, so then I almost feel like this should have like a trigger warning at the start for like I'm going to talk about being anorexic but I don't know how you do that that's your practice that's your we uh, try to tag and add summaries. That's good. Okay, good. I don't want anyone to be like, oh, shit, I didn't realize I was going to go there. Because, like, that's such a distinct chapter in my life that I can just easily not talk about. But it's also, like, it was also, like, pretty formative and also a long time ago. Thank you for sharing it. You're welcome. Um, okay. So then... Um, so you got your master's in library science. Mm-hmm. Uh, where did you go from there? Um, okay, so I was about halfway through the program, and I figured that I would just get a job in some like small town library somewhere in the middle of like the Midwest or the Northeast or the Pacific Northwest, because um, I didn't want to work for New York, Queens, or Brooklyn Public. Like I didn't want to be a small cog in a big library machine. Um, so I was like all gearing up for that. And then a friend of mine, we were friends before the program, and then we became better friends in the program, told me that she had, she had a part-time assistant gig at this private school library in Brooklyn, and that if I wanted it, she could send my resume to the librarian there. So she did, and I interviewed in, like, the spring, and I didn't get that job mostly because my schedule didn't meet, didn't match what they needed in terms of coverage. But then like six months later, I got an email from the librarian at this uh, very fancy private girls school on the Upper East Side saying, Dear Mr. Lukoff, we got your resume from that other librarian. We have a, we have a temporary like medical leave position open. Would you like to interview for it? And I was like, yes, I would like to interview it. Thank you very much. And I never thought, I knew that being a school librarian was a job, like kind of on an intellectual level, but I assumed that those were all jobs taken by like stereotypical librarians and that I would never have a chance at it like why would anyone hire me I'm like 28 and a gay transsexual like I can't have that kind of job Um, but then they hired me and in those six weeks I learned like how you know the, the cataloging system and how you order books and like how you process materials and that sort of thing and then from there I got a similar job at a different high school um also on the Upper East Side because the librarian there was having a baby. So I filled in there for six weeks. And then while I was there, I found out about the job at my current school. Um, and I applied and I got that job. And where is that current job? Uh, it's, should I say the name of the school? I don't know if I should. Uh, um, I'm not going to say the name of the school. Okay. I just don't, for some reason I feel weird about that. Is it public or private? It's a, I, can, I mean, I'll give you the, it's a private school in Chelsea. Like, I don't mind if people find out on their own. I just don't want to, like, say the name. It just feels... I feel like I should check in with my head of school before doing that. So I'll just say that it's a private school in Chelsea. Cool. Yeah. 
And if you do want to add the name waiter, you can let me know and I can tag it with it. Okay, cool. And um, so how's that been? Do you... It's great. I love it. Um, I just help little kids find books all day. And I read picture books to little kids. And I can do whatever I want because I'm the only librarian. Um, And people don't really know what my job is, so I can do whatever I want and say that I'm doing my job. And I do, like, I know what my job is and I am good at it. It's just nice to not have a lot of oversight. Um, I feel like I have a lot of flexibility in terms of what lessons I can do with the kids, what conversations we can have, what materials. Like, I don't have to run my selection past anybody. If I want a book, I can just get it. Mm -hmm. I don't have to ask permission. Like, I know that some librarians, like, some of my friends have work with other librarians who are more conservative than they are so like they either can't get certain books or they have to put books in like restricted sections um i only ever had one book challenged by one person um and that was a mess because basically she didn't want her child i think her kid was a second grader she didn't want her kid to like find out where babies came from basically and so wanted all books about like the reproductive system to be like pulled um, and of course her child was very curious and like seeking this information out um, and the mom like freaked out and was like she's traumatized by this you shouldn't have this in the library and like I was like no it, it, I mean it had to it like was a whole process it went through the head of school and the assistant head and the counselor and I was just like no like you know these materials are professionally recommended for children from this age to this age it, it is fine like they're gonna stay um and that was it. Like, I'm, I've gotten really good at talking people through their concerns. And also, also, like, a lot of it is that, like, if a parent doesn't want their kid to check out a certain kind of book, I'll often talk to them about how, like, you know, your job in this is to talk to your child about why you don't want to, you know, how it makes you feel, what you're worried about. And then you have to tell me that, and then I can sh- I can reinforce that with your child. But I'm also not going to tell your kid what they can and can't do because that is the opposite of my job. So your job is to provide that reinforcement at home. Your job is to tell me that you're providing that reinforcement. And then my job is to remind this child of your expectations and then let this child make their own decisions. Mm-hmm. And it usually works. Like Sometimes a book will come home a second time and there'll be another conversation at home about that. But I would rather kids be involved in this process and it be a learning experience and just have me say no you can't have it because your mom says so because that's also like I'm not your mom I don't care actually it's not my job and I've also gotten better at um foreselling those questions so like if a kid checks out a book that I know is like a little bit weird for them I'll talk to them about why they want it and then I'll send an email home being like hey just to let you know your kid checked out this book I know it seems weird here's why they wanted it you know, you're welcome to talk to them about it at home. If you'd like to come in tomorrow to choose a new one with them, you're welcome to do so. And that's helped a lot, too. Also, a lot of times, parents don't read the books. They just assume what they are. Like um, like the Captain Underpants books. My first year, I had these two moms come in, holding them literally, like, pinched between their two fingers, saying, don't let my child take these books home anymore. And it was my first year. I was, like, 28 and very scared. I was like, okay, okay, I'm sorry. You're right. I'm so sorry. Oh, no. And then a couple years ago, I read every single Captain Underpants, start to finish, and they're brilliant. They are brilliant and subversive and like intellectually like challenging and funny. And, um, and so now, like whenever parents are like, oh, like 
should he be taking Captain Underpants? My answer is yes, definitely. You should read them too because they're great. So that's been helpful too. It's just like actually engaging with the text so that I can better defend them, which seems so obvious, but you don't think about when it's just like goosebumps or um, Captain Underpants or whatever. Mm. Awesome. So with your relative freedom there, um, do you feel like that's a product of the specific school, it being private versus public, um, the kinds of parents that enroll their child? I mean, it's definitely partially related to being a private school, since I don't have to follow, you know, specific mandates that come from the common public education, which is good and bad, I guess. Um, gives me a lot more freedom, which I like, but it also might mean that I'm not, that, like, the kids are getting, like, just different levels of education. Um, Like, I wouldn't be surprised if public school librarians are better at specific skills, um, and I'm more, like, I I don't don't even know. I don't know. I would actually need to talk to more public school librarians and find out what they do to see how we differ. Um, But I think a lot of it is just my school's culture. Like, they've always just had a solo librarian. It's never been a team. Um, And also, before I showed up, there had been one librarian who had been there for many, many, many years. Like, 20 years, I want to say. And then after him, there was some fairly rapid turnover. And then I've been there for going on six years now. So I also helped, like, shape the program in a, like, consistent way that has like a sustained scope and sequence of curriculum that goes from like the youngest children all the way up to the oldest children Mm -hmm. that I've you know developed and refined over the years and what's the age range of children you work with it is two years old through fifth grade Mm -hmm. so very 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 small to just starting middle school yeah it's I really like that age range it's really fun sometimes I wish I worked with older kids as well but I also love that age the age range and I see every single child, so I get to know them all really well. Yeah. It's really nice. Are there any specific books or conversations that you've gotten into the library that you're especially proud of or happy with? Um, I read Animal Farm to my third, fourth, and fifth graders last year. That was great. They were all super into it. Um, they were all bored the first like two chapters, and then they got really into it. Um, I love stopping and being like, do you think the pigs are telling the truth? And they're like, no, they're not. They're lying to them. (laughs) One kid was like, is this a dictatorship? And I was like, kind of. One kid, one fifth grader marched into the library one morning and she said, I have a question. Is Napoleon based on Stalin? And I was like, yep. And she said, "Uh, is Snowball based on Trotsky or Lenin? And I said, well, he's kind of a mix of both. And I said, well, I have a question for you. Do you know who Old Major is based on? She's like, no, who's that? And I said, he's based on someone named Karl Marx. And her dad was right behind her. And he's like, oh, we talked about Karl Marx last night. <laughs> and I started, like, so she was a fifth grader, but I also read it to the third graders. And they were all, like, I remember this one girl who was a third grader at the time who had always been, like, fairly quiet in library, like, never too engaged intellectually with anything. But for some reason she just got really into Animal Farm and got so mad at the pigs and, like, so upset about everything. And it was the first time that I ever saw her, like, really engage passionately with um, with a book like mm. that. It was great. Um, one child, the, the same fifth grader who was asking about, like, Stalin, 
was just she loved boxer you've read animal farm right okay so she loved boxer um and the whole time she's like i love boxer he's my favorite he's so cute and then at one point like halfway through she was like i hope nothing bad happens to him and she saw my face and my face must have like changed and she was like oh no and she started screaming she's like no don't tell me um and so for the rest of for the rest of like the next week she was like is boxer gonna die in this chapter i was like not yet honey and she's still mad about it the last time i saw her she was like can i sue george orwell for killing boxer and i was like you totally can't i'm sorry it was great um that was really fun uh, I'm, I'm proud. And also, like, I was wondering if I would get any remarks from parents. Um, one, one kid was like, my dad says that you shouldn't be reading this to us. And I was like, well, your dad can come talk to me. And he didn't. Um, but every other, every other parent that I talked to was like, it's so great. Like, I didn't read that book till college. Mm-hmm. They were like, they were surprised to hear how much the kids liked it. But they did. So I wasn't lying about that. Um, so yeah, I'm very proud about that. Um what else oh gosh at the beginning of the semester i read this book called ghost by jason reynolds to my fifth graders and it is the only book that i've ever read where every single child was completely in love with it because it's just one of the best middle grade novels i've ever read Mm -hmm. and i like the author jason reynolds was going to be reading from it at books of wonder and i got some of my kids to come like we all like went together they got to meet him and it was really cute they were so happy afterwards the kids who because he read from the opening and i was reading it aloud to them and the next time i saw them in class i was like oh you know can you tell your classmates about how you liked it and they're all like he reads better than kyle and i was like yeah that's fair like he's better at reading this book than i am that is you are not wrong um i'm proud of that what else i don't know i'm proud of a lot that i do with them um i often like kids often say like busted stuff like you know kids are kids are kids like they're figuring out what the world is so like you might catch them like you know if they look out the window like I've, i've seen kids like look out the window and see like someone with a disability like walking with a cane or a hunch and like start laughing at them and I'll call them on that or you know making jokes about babies born with birth defects and I'm always like nope that's not funny let me tell you why um and like I've gotten pretty good at actually having a conversation instead of telling them what they're doing mm-hmm. um like I've definitely called kids who like have like done something racist and I've said that word like that what you're doing right now is racist you should think about it if you want to behave that way and then they are like oh i didn't i'm like yeah i know you didn't mean to that's why i'm telling you so you know so you don't hurt people later um a lot of fat phobia which i am good at calling kids on um especially because they never hear people say that like fat is a neutral descriptor of some bodies it is not good or bad it is just mm-hmm. a neutral descriptor and i don't want you to i don't want to hear you use that word when you're trying to be hurtful because it is not a hurtful word and you're trying to be hurtful so stop it um uh my kids most i'm out as trans at my school not everybody knows because i don't like give everyone a memo at the first day of school every year but it is not a secret and it is something that like i have discussed with them and that's been really great um they're never confused so i was just like oh, okay that's cool whatever um 
one time there was this first he was either a kindergartner or a first grader I don't remember how old he was and he has a big brother who's also in the school and at one point he was looking at like a bunch of pink graphic novels or something he was like oh these are girl books and I was like actually buddy you know and I said something about how like when I was a kid my parents let me read whatever I want and I read lots of girl books like Angelina Ballerina and Babysitter's Club and he looked at me and he said did you used to be a girl and I couldn't tell if he knew I was trans or if he was just trying to be a jerk about it mm. so I kind of like elided the question I was like well you know when I was a kid I got to read whatever I wanted or something and he said, no, I know it's true. My brother told me that you used to be a girl, and then you took medicine that turned you into a boy, and that's why you changed your name. And I was like, ah, well, your brother's right, but I still like girl books now, which means anyone can like them. And he was like, okay. And he just got, kind of ran off. Um, and the only other time that he brought that up, I had no idea that his brother knew either. His brother had never, like, breathed a word to me. Yeah. Um, and then, like, the next year, that same kid... I was reading his class this book called Rough Tough Charlie, which is a rhyming book about this person named Charles Parkhurst, who was probably a trans man, but that language and identity didn't exist at the time. And at the end, it's like revealed that, quote unquote, he was really a woman or something. Um, and the same kid raised his hand and was like, well, he didn't raise his hand because he never does. But he said, oh, did he take that medicine too? And I was like, no, they didn't have that medicine back then. But back then, he just lived as a man. Um, and he was like, oh, okay, cool. Like, he was like first or, I think he was a first grader. He was a first grader at the time. And just like chill about it. Like, it wasn't a big deal. Mm -hmm. um, that's been really good. I don't off, like, it doesn't often come up in conversations. So I don't have conversations about it very often. But especially with the slightly older kids, they're more familiar with the concept, just like in the news or like their parents might be discussing it. Um, so I've had more conversations these past couple of years than I did my first three years. Also because now I'm more comfortable there. Like, I'm not worried that someone's going to start, like, a nasty rumor about me or that it's going to be used against me in some, like, gay panic or trans panic way. Um, so the more, the more I feel like it isn't a big deal, the more comfortable I am talking about it more casually with kids. But also it just doesn't come up that often because they don't care about me. They're children. Like, I don't exist outside of the library. Because mm. they're kids. So it sounds like you see the... You see that it's been coming up more in the past mm -hmm. two years as perhaps a combination of your own comfort with it and popular culture? Definitely, yeah. Also because with the slightly older kids, the third and fourth graders, this year we started something called like the Social, Social Justice Morning Meetings. Um, which is so great. And it's where we just talk about like current events and stuff. So the teachers in that age are also bringing it up more in the classroom. Mm. Um, and because it's like social justice morning meeting, like we, we are talking about things that they've heard about. So like, you know, Black Lives Matter comes up, reproductive rights come up, refugees and immigrants come up um, in kind of the same way. But I'm, you know, they're local trans teacher so I often you know they'll often like direct those questions to me which I think is ideal because I know more than the other teachers do just because it's my life and community how do you think um, the children you work with um, how are they processing like mainstream media accounts of trans and queer topics I don't really know 
Um, well, I do know that most of them, or many of them, are very focused on marriage. Like, partially because that's such a safe way to talk about same-sex, like, desire or love with children. It is often filtered through marriage. Um, which I find a little frustrating, but I'm also not going to get too up in arms about it. Um, so, yeah, I would say it's mostly filtered through like who can and can't get married or who can and can't like love each other so to speak um i so as part of our social justice morning meetings the kids were allowed for like the last few weeks or like last couple months Mm -hmm. we were allowed to break up into they could choose what group they wanted to be part of so some kids were like in a black lives matter group and some kids were in a reproductive rights group and i had a couple three kids three or four kids who wanted to be in the quote-unquote LGBTQIA plus group, except they didn't actually know what all those letters meant. They were just parroting them, which honestly kind of bothers me. Um, because like they didn't, because they didn't know what each word, what each letter signified, they weren't able to parse what subject was about which identity. So mm. like something specifically related to intersex people is different from something that only affects lesbians who aren't intersex. And like, but they, because they weren't given enough scaffolding to understand each individual letter, they just kind of lumped it all together. Um, because that was coming from their like, well-meaning straight teachers who I really like and have respect for, but um, they were just kind of parroting LGBTQIA plus without knowing anything. Actually, this was hilarious. One girl, fourth grader, was like, I know what all the letters stand for. Um, lesbian, gay, bystander? <laughs> I just crack up. It's like, I'm not laughing at you. It's fine. It's just very funny. Because <laughs> they've also been talking about, like, bystanders and bullies and ups. So, like, it was just all kind of lumped together in her mind. Mm. This brings me to a question of identity politics. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose in the teaching climate and also the books that you've been seeing coming out for children, specifically from ages 2 to 5th grade, mm-hmm. um, how has specific language been used? Has it been like taught of like these are some proper terms to use um or does it seem more focused on concepts and patterns of experience um i would say that the most successful books are the latter are like patterns and experience and concepts um because like that's that's what makes literature art as opposed to just like a how-to manual um Mm -hmm there is more of a push now I don't know is that even true um there is there is slightly more of a push now for more like authentic diverse representations in children's literature which is great but since publishing is still predominantly dominated by like straight white people um those are all still necessarily filtered through those imaginations um so, you know, from, ev- like, I, like, I wouldn't be surprised if, like, from every, from, like, of the handful of excellent books published this year by, for example, like, Muslim women, 
or like recent immigrants or whatever for every like five books that get published there's probably 500 books that might actually be as good if not better but the gatekeepers don't like want to accept those specific narratives mm -hmm. um, i'm sure it's more complicated than that i'm just really better about publishing in some ways um so there is more of a push for identity based literature and not just realistic fiction like you know and you know space and adventure and genre um mystery scary stories that are just about like straight white kids mm -hmm. um which is wonderful and also like the power structures in place are still the same which makes me question like what what stories are still not being shared you know mm. so are there any strategies you use to mitigate the effect of those gatekeepers and get access and find ways of sharing um, the more um, the literature that's not as well distributed kind of I mean I do try to get stuff like I, I will I will get stuff that's like independently published or self-published if I like it but there's so much and it's really hard to sort through like what's actually good versus because like on the one hand the gate like gatekeepers are going to keep like excellent stories from getting out there on the other hand there's a lot of really bad writing out there like that's just a thing like and it has nothing to do with like who's writing like there's just mm -hmm. you know boring or too long or too meandering um or like just not accessible for children even though it's supposed to be for children so that part's been hard um last year i went to the brooklyn book fair i think that's what it's called and i like went to different tables of like you know bookstores or publishers with children's materials and i asked a bunch of people what books they had by people of color and they all got really uncomfortable um which also one can do at any like book festival or conference Be like oh so what do you have here by you know queer people or people of color or whatever um and then watch them be like oh uh um uh, mm, yeah mm. yeah i don't know if that does anything but at least it like i like i i want i want i want them to think that there is a market because the only way that these books will get published is if we can prove that it'll make them money and if i say i will buy this then maybe that'll trickle its way somewhere i don't know mm. um i'm not in the publishing industry so i don't have really much power in it um i'm hopefully going to be doing some work with the we need diverse books uh organizations soon to help create a guide for assessing picture books for this award but I haven't been in touch with the organizers for a little while. I need to be in touch with them soon. I tried and then they were busy with something, so I should mm -hmm. nudge them again. That would be really cool because like I I want books to be like like I'm going to okay, I'm going to speak from like my from like my own identity because I don't want to like be seen as like I don't want to I want I don't want to imply anything about any other community that I'm not involved in. Like for example, I want books about trans kids to be good books first. 
Like, I think that a book fails if its message is solid, but the execution is boring or clunky or too long or pedantic or didactic or overly moralistic or overly, like, cheesy. I hate, like, I would rather, like, I, I don't read those books to my kids because they're too smart for them. They can see right through them. And I don't want to, to think, like, oh, all the books about these kinds of kids are boring. Mm. I have to read them because they're good. Like, I don't want them to be, like, you know, Brussels sprouts or whatever. Um, I want them to be books that kids want to read because they, like, touch them or because they're funny or because they're just interesting, not because they're just, like, titillating, mm. you know? Um, and I think it's really important that we judge children's literature about marginalized communities as literature because that's the only way that it will that's the only way that it can be good and like actually like reach children you know um which is not me saying that like trans people or other marginalized people are like bad writers because like most of it isn't by people within that community like it's mostly by outsiders looking in which is probably why it's so boring Mm. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk a bit more about um, queer and trans inclusion by cis non queer authors? They and could just, what you've been seeing. They could just stop. That would be fine. I'd be super cool with them just like not for a while. Um. The only mm, I keep reading books by cis people about trans people that are really boring and really predictable and really like just trope laden and I hate it like I want it I think what's hard I, I think that part of why cis people have such a hard time getting it right is because they really want to get it right and don't necessarily want to make it good like mm. I've, I've read quite a few books that feel like the trans character or the trans characters are like a composite of like every interview and blog post they happen to come across instead of like a real person um and also, they just can't seem to, they just can't seem to imagine what a trans character could be or could do without resorting to these, like, boring tropes or stereotypes. Um, also, like, they don't know what we talk about when they're not there. Like, I think, like, cis people definitely think that if they just do the research, they can get it right. But there's so much more to it than just reading the right books that were edited by cis people and reading the right magazine articles that were written by cis people and reading the right interviews where the interviewers were cis mm. and edited by cis people. Um, because that still, it's still filtered through that limited imagination. Whereas if you were if you're actually in the community and like you can be cis and be in the community like some of my friends know know us as you know like it's it's not just trans people like there's a lot of like 
like in in Brooklyn at least we're very lucky that there's such a large community that like you can have a cis person where like half of their friends are trans and so they are around us when we're talking just about our lives in like a very natural organic way and like what we joke about and the way we talk about our lives and our bodies and our like dates and our histories that is like much more like natural and free than what you're going to come across in like an official interview like this one Mm -hmm. um someone actually my friend Meredith Meredith Russo the woman who wrote if I was your girl said that you can tell when someone is not a member of an of an of like a community but also shares share like but also engages in that community in a celebratory way like are you at our parties are you you know do you yeah I mean that's like are you at our parties like what's it like when we're all like kind of like drunk and messy and like what do the sober kids talk about when everyone is drunk and messy around them? Like, it's so different than you read this one book and you read this one article, or even you read these 10 books, like 10 books that are like written by cis people about trans people won't give you half the information of like one like messed up party. Just in terms of like, how are we as humans around ourselves? Like, what do we talk about when you can't hear us? This is all, none of this also to anyone listening, I would never like, write this in an essay I'm just kind of like freestyling right now so if I listen to this I might disagree with some of what I'm saying later I reserve the right to disagree with anything that I'm saying (laughs) um yeah it's just often just boring and also because also god because so many of them are so well-intentioned like they want to write books to make the world a better place for these kids they forget that we're also like people who are like rude and messy and some of us are racist and some of us are fat phobic and I mean there are books that portray trans people as being like racist or trans or like fat phobic or whatever but you can always tell when it's because the author actually doesn't realize that's what they're doing as opposed to when it's a conscious choice of showing the like broad spectrum of the community like you can tell when the author makes that joke because they don't realize that it's fucked up versus when a character when an author intentionally has a character expound on a certain belief that is fucked up because they want to show that possibility does that make sense Mm -hmm. i guess i don't know if that makes sense um yeah like if you're too invested in helping us then you're going to make us look good but not real Mm. I guess is part of where I'm at so then it sounds like it's almost meant more for assist readership to learn about trans tropes than for trans kids to feel resonance and like introspection yeah or even it's for cis people to learn about what we're like but not necessarily to be interested in a book as a book like I I was I've been like having this idea for a while that I've been talking over with a friend about um I think when it comes to trans like literature or like other like movies or whatever I think cis people mistake titillation for inspiration mm-hmm. like when they come away from a book or a movie and say I'm so inspired what they really mean was I was so titillated by this but they don't realize that those are different feelings um like I think that they're just still profoundly fascinated by our bodies and by the like process of transitioning that it like 
it, it like activates them. It's like a sort of like, oh my gosh, like this is so, but that, that feeling of titillation is mistaken for an emotional connection or experience. I might be wrong. I haven't actually like asked anyone about it, but it seems right. Like it, it seems like perfectly intelligent, critical people like forget, like forget everything that they know about literary criticism or film criticism or whatever when the subject is a trans person. And I don't know if it's because they just don't want to be rude or because they are actually like titillated and don't realize that they should just be having an opinion, you know, or that like they, yeah, yeah like you're like, I sometimes tell cis people who like gush over a piece of media that I find mediocre to say, you know, you're actually allowed to critique something. You don't have, it is not transphobic for you to say that the pacing in this was all off or that the ending wasn't rich enough or that the descriptions fell flat or that the dialogue was stilted. That doesn't make you transphobic. And it makes you transphobic to say, I loved this when you didn't actually. Um, that's a big thing for me. It's like, you can engage with this literature as literature. You're not allowed to say that like, you know, I wanted, or, you know, you're not, like there, there's ways of critiquing that are transphobic and ways of critiquing that are actually like perfectly valid. A lot of what I do is like kind of give people permission to critique a text in ways that are like valid, you know. And uh, have you, do you think there are any consequences to this reluctance to treat, to um, apply literary criticism to translate it? Oh yeah, I mean it means that like, it means that like mediocre literature is taken as the norm and books that are actually better than that are like not somehow like not because like if mediocre literature becomes the accepted norm then actually good literature is seen as like unfamiliar and therefore not quite right does mm-hmm. that make sense mm-hmm. like if someone is used to only connecting to like one kind of like spoon-fed bland story something that actually makes them think or makes them question is like too scary and they can't get past that like they they just want to feel bad for you like they just they just want to read a book about a trans kid and either feel sad or inspired or feel good about themselves for feeling sad they don't want to actually have to like question or think about it too deeply which i think is why like better literature is being rejected and mediocre literature is being propped up. I could name specifics, but I don't want to get, I don't want anyone to get mad at me. And then, um, perhaps this is an uninteresting question that you just want to shrug off, <laughs> but uh, how do you define or characterize trans literature? Um, that's actually not a bad question because a a novel with a trans person isn't necessarily trans literature, and a novel by a trans person isn't necessarily trans literature. I would say that trans literature is characterized by, well, it does have to have a character who is trans, I would say, otherwise it doesn't really count, unless it was like deeply symbolic or metaphorical, which is probably too confusing for me. Um, I would say that trans literature is where the character or characters gender identity and trans identity is a part of the story and is necessary 
to the story, not necessarily in a plot way. Like, it doesn't have to be, like, you know, and then everyone found out you were trans, the end. But, like, the trans character has to be in the story in an important way. And their identity has to matter. Like, really, any character could be trans and stealth. You just don't know about it, you know, like... I don't know. Um, I'm looking at my shelf of books right now. Like in, I don't know, in House of Leaves, right? Like the dad could be a transsexual man and he just never talks about it. That's totally possible. Or in, you know, The Lord of the Rings, all those fucking elves could be trans and they just don't talk about it. So a character, like you have to know that a character is trans. So their transness has to be related to the story somehow. Um, And I would say that I think trans literature is at its best when the understanding of a character's identity and history informs the underlying themes and concepts of the novel. So the character's identities add to the larger questions or concepts being brought up in this text. So, like, for example, this is a, not a novel, but it's, a, it's like a toast, like a speech. Um, a couple weeks ago, I was at Barnard for, like, a reunion event, and Jennifer Finney Boylan gave a toast. Um, and she's a lovely writer. She often writes about being trans, and she often doesn't. And she gave a lovely brief speech about what it's like for her. So she's only been at Barnard for three years, and she said that it was intimidating to talk before this group of people who, you know, some of whom were Barnett students 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. And the campus has been going under significant renovations. Like there's several new buildings. The library has been demolished. They're building a whole new building in this place. It's not a sightly campus anymore because of all the massive construction. She said, what is it like to come back to a place that shaped you? That is on the one hand, nothing like you remember it. And at the same time, fundamentally the same. And she said, you know, as a transgender person, this relates to me. What does it mean to have a fixed sense of self, but also a shifting reality. And like, I loved that she brought like the campus, the, the, the physical reality of the campus and our experiences in the past and in the present to, as related to being trans. Um, she's, and like, that's, that's beautiful, I love that. She wasn't saying, you know, well, when I transitioned first, you know, I grew my hair or whatever. Like she didn't take us through any boring, like nitty gritty details it was more like what is this feeling of change how does this feeling of change relate to my identity how does this feeling of change relate to your college how does this feeling of change relate to our experiences as people mm. um that's when i think and like this was just like a funny speech that she said you know it wasn't a novel but like that's when i think trans literature is at its best when the experience of being trans can lead to a deeper understanding of what it means to be human or a novel about a human experience is filtered through the specific device of a character being trans. That was, I didn't really gonna ask that question, otherwise I would have come up with a more pithy answer. Oh, okay. I think I did fine. Yeah. Her speech was really good, it like really touched me. She also made a joke about how like this old New England farmer joke about how like, oh, this is the best shovel, I've never had to replace a shovel, I've had it for 40 years, I've changed the blade twice and the handle three times. Like, it's not, it's a different shovel then. Right. You know, is it a different shovel then? That's apparently an old philosophy question. Like, if you have a knife and you change the blade and you change the handle, is it the same knife? Mm -hmm. um, 
which I think actually has a lot of implications for being a transsexual, but I'm not a philosophy student, so I don't know. Mm. Um, so now, your own writing. Yes. Uh, well, I already advertised by Peace and Gender Outlaws, which I still feel proud of for the most part. Um, I don't identify as a writer. I can get more onto that later, except I'm obviously a writer, so it feels really twee and pretentious to say that I don't identify as a writer, but I like don't introduce myself that way. Um, I've written a lot of short stories that have been published in various anthologies, which is cool. Um, also like some online writing. Um, but I have two picture books coming out. The first one is due out in the spring, and it's called The Storytelling of Ravens. And it's about collective nouns because I love collective nouns. I just, I love them. Um, I'm very excited for that one. And then the second picture book is coming out in the fall of 2019, if the world lasts that long, God willing, Ruf Hashem. Um, and that one is called Explosion at the Poem Factory. And so when I was talking about college, I mentioned this club. I was in the Philolexian Society. And every year, Philo has something called the Alfred Joyce Kilmer Memorial of Bad Poetry Contest. Because Alfred Joyce Kilmer wrote that poem, I think that I shall never see a poem lovely as a tree. And he was a member of Philo. And every year, well, every year since we started doing it, we've had a bad poem contest where people write intentionally bad poetry. Um, and one year, I think it was 2008, my friend Amitai wrote a poem called Explosion at the Poem Factory. And it was really funny. It was like really weird and kind of hard. Like it was kind of uneven. I think he spent, he said he spent like two hours writing it the day before. Um, but there were four lines in it that really, that I just loved. And it was um, the enjambment jammed, the anacrusis encrusted, the, no, the amphibrac broke, the enjambment jammed, the anacrusis encrusted, and the kenning ceased to ken. And I didn't actually know what enjambment and amphibrac and anacrusis or kenning were at the time, but I knew that they were like somehow related to poetry. And I thought that was just such clever wordplay. And the whole poem was filled with brilliant wordplay. Um, and I loved it. And then like eight years later, after my first picture book sold, I had this brainstorm. I was like, that could be a picture book. That could be great. Because I do a whole poetry note with my third and fourth graders where I like show them, because I, I really love language. I love taxonomy and I love funny words. So I like, you know, told them what foot each of their names or is like, you know, like the name, you know, Sarah is a, um, is a trochee and like the name like Susanna is an amphibrac like it all depends on where the stress falls I love that like nerdy technical language stuff so I wrote I, I asked him for permission so it's not plagiarism it's all above board um, and I wrote a picture book based on the concept of a poem factory exploding where it follows like this one person um, this one guy who like gets a job working there and then it explodes um and i i just stole those four lines i just like took those lines um and i also like took a couple other little bits here and there like uh the spring fell out of the sprung rhythm and landed across the shop floor um so there are definitely like some percentage of sentences that are just like taken directly from his poem with his permission but then the rest of the narrative i came up with and i also came up with my own wordplay um, and I'm really excited about it. It's so nerdy and it's so fun. And I also wrote, so at the back there's going to be a lot of uh, a glossary to explain like each 
because you don't need to know what an amphibrac is to know that the amphibrac broke like you don't mm. need to know what that is or like you don't need to know what a volta is when you know what a voltatron is like it's just a machine it's called the voltatron who cares what a volta is but at the back i explain like every single device that i use like this is what a foot is this is what blank verse is this is what a sestina is this is what a sejura is um and so for some of them i've just like written examples like i couldn't really figure out how to explain what a sonnet is to children so i said a sonnet is a complicated form of poetry here's an example of a sonnet so i just like wrote a sonnet for them um, it's like a Cestina, is it Cestina or Cestina? I don't even know. I should find that out. Um, you know, a Cestina is another very complicated kind of poem where the last word in each line repeats itself in a specific pattern. Can you figure out the pattern by reading the Cestina? So I just like wrote a Cestina. It was so fun. Um, I'm super excited for that one. And oh, I wish that this interview were happening in like a month from now and I had more information. I can like update you later, but I feel like I'm about to sell a picture book about a trans boy. I think I'm really close to it. I don't want to jinx it um, because I thought I was really close a few months ago and then they said no and that pissed me off. Mm. But I think I'm really close because this one editor read it and she said that she really loved it and she showed it to the other editors and they were impressed by it. And she said, can you make these revisions to it? And, I was, and so now I'm like, I'm revising based on her comments and it mm. might not happen with this publishing house, but I'm really hopeful um, because I love it and it's so good and so cute and so sweet. Tell me about it. it unless that's giving it away. Um, I'm not giving it, like, I mean, who knows if this will ever get published. So maybe this like will become an archival like source of a non-existent picture book. Or maybe this will be like the first time that the pub, I don't know, we'll see. Um, I'm, I don't want to jinx it, but it's the tentative title is Aiden and the Baby. Aiden, because it's such a common trans name, and it also works for a little kid. It like it, it's it's kind of an inside joke, but also there's a lot of children named Aiden, so it's not actually like wrong, you know. Um, it's called Aiden and the Baby, and it's about this little kid where the first the first third of the book is him is like so it starts off saying when he was born everyone thought he was a girl and here's all the ways that they like raised him as a girl and then he realized that he really wasn't any kind of girl he was really just a trans boy um so that's like the first third because i also like i didn't want to dead name him i didn't want to talk about his body and i also didn't want to make it his fault that he was like like i didn't want to make it his problem i wanted to really put the emphasis that like all these people are assuming something wrong about him and it's not his fault it's their fault um and then his and then his uh, mom is gonna have a baby and so the next the next like two-thirds of the novel more than two-thirds are him and his family preparing for the baby mm -hmm. but figuring out how to welcome this baby in a way that isn't like coercing it into a gendered expression so like when he was born they bought him like dresses and painted his room pink but for this baby, they're going to do all this other stuff that isn't gendered. Um, mm. And he feels like it's really his job to make sure that this baby feels welcomed and supported immediately. Mm. But then he starts to get anxious because he's like, oh, but what if the baby doesn't like this? Like, what if this is all wrong? What if I made all these mistakes? Um, and then his mom says, like, well, it's okay. Like, we made some mistakes when you were born and you helped us fix them. Um, it's really good. Oh. I, like, almost cried just talking about it. Um, I'm not quoting it directly because, like, I don't know, copyright or whatever, but that's like the gist of it. It's really sweet and it's really good and I love it and people are stupid for not wanting it. 
love to read that. It's really good. Um, I'm actually like getting all emotional now because it's just so sweet. Um, it's like sweet and it's also like not misogynist. It doesn't say like Aiden hated pink because pink is for girls. Because like that's misogyny and I hate that. Um, he's just he's just a boy. He's just a little kid who wants his little sibling to be happy. Mm-hmm. It's really good. Um, I'm actually going to hopefully meet the editor that I've been corresponding with this weekend and maybe we'll have a chance to talk about it. But her revisions are like, they're good revisions. Like none of them are like, you should make him be more trans or less trans or something. Her revisions are like, can you foreground this tension sooner? Can you make this last moment a little bit more active and less passive? Which I'm sure I can do. I just really want this book to happen because it's so good. Mm. I love it. Um, and again, with like mediocre literature being published, I'm convinced that part of why it's having so much trouble with other editors is because it's not what they're expecting to see. They're expecting to see a trans book that's like, when Aiden was born, he knew that he was a boy immediately, even though his body was wrong and gross. And then everyone bullied him until he bravely stood up for himself, and then everyone accepted him. Because that's, that's like every book, and I'm so sick of it. Like, and I also really didn't want him to be bullied in this book. Like, I wanted the emotional journey to be, like, his own, like, feelings of, like, love and uncertainty and, like, mm-hmm. you know, his own, like, his own projections onto this child when he's trying to not project anything. And, like, yeah, I wanted it to be, like, a much more internal emotional journey, much less, like, you know. And then people were mean to him for being transgender. Mm-hmm. And then one person stood up for him, and then everyone was his friend. Because it's so boring. I hate that. It's so boring. I don't want to write a boring book. I don't want to read a boring book. I hate boring books. Mm-hmm. But that's all cis people want, boring books. Except for this one person who seems cool. We'll see. <laughs> I'm so grumpy about it. I'm so mad. Do you have, um, would you be illustrating it? or No, no I want it to look good. So I, um, so my, <laughs> no, I can't draw. It would be a disaster if I tried to draw it. No one would want to read that book. Um, so it's, uh, if you're not illustrating it yourself, then it's an editor's job to place you, to pair you with an illustrator. So my first two books, so my first illustrator for Storytelling of Ravens is a woman named Natalie Nelson, who's very talented, and I'm really excited to see the final draft. Um, what's funny, though, is that I think a lot of people outside of the industry don't realize that I have, at least for my first two books, I have zero control over the illustrations. Like, zero um i mean hopefully if i said i super hate that Mm -hmm. they would take that into account but it's not under my control at all um actually i've only seen one page from my first book so far and she interpreted my so i had my own imagine imaginary of what the page would look like and she interpreted it entirely differently like i never even thought about that possibility and it's completely different um, and it's fine. I love it. It's just not at all what I thought it would be. Um, if Aiden and the baby goes to publication, I think that I would need to have a little bit more say in the illustrations just for a few specific scenes to be like, hey, don't, you know, don't have any close-ups on a baby picture of him, for example. Like, I don't like before and after that sort of thing. You know, don't, you know, there's a few things to make it, like, sensitive or relevant that I would have to give my input on, but, like, not so much in terms of, like, what color shirt he's wearing or what anyone look you know that sort of thing mm. or rather yeah I think I would have to have a little bit more say with that book but not not much more and 
your experience with publishers. So it sounds like by how you characterized, would you, would you characterize um, a story telling of ravens or explosion at the bone factory as trans literature? Not even slightly. Okay. Not even slightly. I mean, one could make, one could make an argument that like a decadent and frivolous obsession with language is inherently homosexual. <laughs> <laughs> Which, like, I would, but also, like, they're not gay books. I just appreciate the phrase, like, a decadent obsession with frivolous language. That's just me. Oh, man, I wish I could edit that part out. That's not nice to say. But whatever. I don't care. Um, no, they're not even slightly. Like, one is about collective nouns of animals, and the other is about a poem factory exploding. And so how, how is it navigating publishers and editors, um, do you feel like being trans affected that process mm-hmm. for you? Uh, m- my books that are not at all related to my identity are those found a publisher pretty easily, and they found a very good and discriminating and discerning publisher very easily. And mm. my editor, like, honestly, like, she praises my writing to the moon and back. Like, she thinks I'm so talented. Um, anything that I try to write that isn't that is like trans focused the reaction that I often get is like oh look how cute it thinks it can write like us I've been I've been tremendously patronized Mm -hmm. um and dismissed and treated like you know a dancing bear or something like oh it's so cute that it wants to write about itself whereas my writings that aren't trans are like or like in other in other like professional contexts like I've gotten a lot of like praise and support for my writing and I can't imagine that my writing experiences a sharp decline in quality the second it becomes slightly more personal um maybe I'm wrong like I don't know but it something feels fishy to me in that you know um yeah it's 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 not it's not the best also like you know with various industry professionals I've like if like in meetings or whatever they'll say things that are just transphobic that they don't realize are transphobic and I'll have to be like uh-huh yeah I've actually heard that before here's a funny thing about that statement like it's got it there's something called like you know like Godwin's law on the internet about how like anything will sub- will like if an internet common thread goes unchecked long enough it will eventually turn into someone comparing you to Hitler Mm. it's like the joke is that it's like I don't know why it's called Godwin's Law I should look that up but I feel like there's got to be some kind of like Caitlyn Jenner's law that anytime any trans person wants to talk about anything in front of a cis person they have to bring up their opinions about Caitlyn Jenner somehow it's so annoying um and like again like because cis people have only ever read books about trans stuff by cis people they think that certain things are acceptable and they're actually like oppressive and offensive so, like, I've had people say, like, oh, well, what if you had a scene where he did this? And, I'm like, I can see why you want that, and that's actually really offensive, and I will never write a book where that happens, ever. Never. Um, but they just don't, and, like, they're well-meaning. They just don't know because they don't know any other trans people. Or, like, they know one other one. I don't know. It's not, it's not easy or fun or pleasant. And so, like, it, I'm, like, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm sure that this is also, like, fairly similar to experiences of like disabled people or people of color or you know neurotypical people or whatever also or like deaf people have to engage with like it's just all it's never the same and like everyone has privileges and marginalizations and different axes but 
I'm sure that if I were to sit in a room with like a bunch of other people who were not trans but otherwise marginalized, we'd be like, oh my god, that same thing happened to me, you know. Now, can you tell me about some of your work in literary criticism, working for the Stonewall Book Awards? Oh yeah, that was fun. Yeah. Um, let's see. I don't. I. I think that to get on Stonewall, so first you have to be a member of the American Library Association, and then you have to be a member of the GLBT Roundtable, and then you can apply to be on Stonewall. And I think that they just take anyone who applies. Um, I was on the youth subcommittee. It, originally there was just one committee that read everything, and then because there started to be more and more and more young adult and children's literature, they split it up into two communities, which or two committees, which I think makes a lot of sense and is really smart. Um, so it was really just like, so over the course of a calendar, you start reading in like January, and then you, and the publishers will send you every single book that they think is eligible. And to be el eligible, a book just needs to have LGBTQ themes, which means that some books might like literally be like a coming out story or about like a trans like superhero or whatever. But then there's some books where like the main characters cousin is gay and shows up on like three pages towards the end and like I'm like I thanks for wasting my time with this book I'm kind of pissed off that you think that this is relevant um a lot of books about trans people by cis people um so the queer themes have to be explicit it can't be like the philosophical kind of like transness like this feels like it has um I mean We've definitely gotten some of those, but if something isn't at least, like, kind of explicit... I mean, it's for kids, right? Like, The Ugly Duckling has been retold a million different times, and it's not suddenly trans. Now, although I've seen publishers try to be like, oh, this, like, retelling of The Ugly Duckling is relevant for trans kids. Like, no, you literally just discover that trans kids existed, and you want more money. Like, fuck you, it's just The Ugly Duckling. Like, mm. stop it. I'm so mad about that. Um... Yeah, I mean, like, there's some books where, like, it's just, like, a fairly typical story, but the character has gay moms or something like that. It's, like, a whole spectrum of representation and themes. Um, so, like, that worked was, like, you read every single book, or at least I, or one should read every single book. Um, and then there, sometimes there's, like, lengthy email discussions or debates about books, but this year there weren't that many. Um... And then you, and then towards the end of the year, in like November-ish, you vote on your favorites. And then that is like, then that's, then there's a list of like the top 20 or 30. And then of that top 30 or whatever, you vote for your top 10. And then those top 10 are what um, we bring to discuss at the meeting. Yeah. And we really have one day to deliberate. It's like one day in January where we all just sit around a table and argue. Um, it's really fun, actually. What's interesting is that there's no identity requirement for being on Stonewall, so there's always straight people on it. Um, hmm. But, like, that doesn't necessarily... Like, I disagree with queer people all the time, so it doesn't actually necessarily mean much, although I would prefer it if it was, like, more queers. Um, and, yeah, it can get pretty heated. Like, also because the, uh, the, the criteria are fairly vague. It's just books that have a noteworthy representation of the LGBTQ experience. So 
it doesn't necessarily have to be for the best written book. It doesn't necessarily have to be for the most groundbreaking book. It doesn't necessarily have to be for the most creative or inventive book. So the, the word like best is very, 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 very subjective. Mm. Um, for me, best, this again is subjective, but for me, like the, the Stonewall should go to the books that expand, either expand or exemplify what the genre is capable of. So that was what I was reading for. Is this a lovely story that I've read 10 times before? Then it's great, but it doesn't, expand or exemplify the genre or is this a story that i've read before but something about like the writing or the characters is so like rich and deep and gorgeous that it exemplifies what this is capable of and that might be eligible even though the the narrative itself isn't groundbreaking Mm. um i find it's like a delicate balance between like groundbreaking and exemplary um and that it's always it always has to be weighed in one direction or the other but that both are important Do you think having this kind of award is important? Like, what kind of work does it do? Yeah, I mean, one thing that I definitely think is that, uh, especially for libraries with limited budgets or with, like, stricter collection uh, policies, like, so, for example, my first year on Stonewall, the book Sex is a Funny Word, won a Stonewall honor. Um, I hadn't heard about it until they sent it to us, and it is one of the most perfect books I've ever read in my entire life. I love every sentence in that book. And also, it is not ex- it is not it is not explicitly a queer book in the way that straight people understand it. Um so after a lot of arguing, we gave it the honor. And then immediately after that, the publishers started getting so many more notices from people wanted to buy it like I went to libraries where I saw that they had received it two weeks after the award ceremony they would have not gotten that book if it hadn't won the Stonewall Mm. either because they didn't know about it or didn't realize that it was any different from any other like pre-puberty book or whatever so I think Stonewall does a really good job of either bringing books to people's attention who might not have had that otherwise giving libraries an excuse to purchase books that they might not be allowed to otherwise and also um Oh, and then the third would be uh, providing a like professional safety net for librarians if a book is challenged. Like, oh, you can't shelve this here. Like, this is inappropriate. Well, but look, the American Library Association gave it an award. That's not my fault. Like, this is just officially good. It gives it like a, a like official seal of approval. Mm-hmm. And then for some books, um, I think giving it an award pushes publishers to recognize that queer content doesn't just have to be like only for queer people so like the book that won the children's award this past january is a rick reardon book it's the second book in the magnus chase so it's like the second book in his fifth series about just like mythology and like kids having adventures and saving the world with like swords and fart jokes and stuff but in the second book he introduces this character named alex fiero who is a who's gender fluid usually goes by she, her pronouns, sometimes goes by he, him pronouns. Um, and she's an amazing character. Like, he is the only, he might be the only cis person that I've ever come across to write a trans character in a way that feels deeply right and good to me. I read this, I kept waiting for him to piss me off, and I kept waiting for him to offend me or hurt my feelings, and I just kept loving it. She was so good. He did such a good job with her. 
And after the award ceremony, I kept having people be like, yeah, I didn't bother to read that one because, like, it's just another, why would I read that one? It's for kids. It's just another whatever. Um, and I think, I, I think that giving, giving Magnus Chase the award is like, look, you can have queer and trans children in any story. They can be, like, shapeshifters and Valkyries, and they can, like, have adventures. They, it doesn't just have to be about a kid who, like, comes out and then is bullied and then is inspiring. Um, so I think that St Stonewall Award has a lot of different, um, it has a lot of potential power in a lot of different directions. Mm. And I'm really proud of the work that I did on it. Me and my friend Talia, um, she is one of, like, the best allies I've ever met. And, like, we, like, we actually would, like, strategize our arguments, like, you know, when are you going to talk? When, like, what point should you make because you're cis and they'll listen to you versus what points should I make because I'm trans and they'll feel guilty if they don't agree? Uh -huh. Like, we were actually, like, carefully strategizing our arguments. And we even disagreed about some books, um, but never on, like, a deep political level. Just like, I like that one, I didn't like that one, that's okay. Mm. So I feel good about that. Is there anything else about uh, being on different uh, book committees and literary criticism circles that you'd like to speak to? Um, not really. I feel like I should be more out there. Like I should write and publish more, but I'm also busy and I like to read and I like to do my jigsaw puzzle and I like to hang out with my friends. So. I don't just want to like complain about trans books all the time, um, but I'm slowly starting to review them on my blog. I've only done two so far, and I should start doing more. But also, like, I hate reading them. It just it hurts my feelings and it gets me mad. Mm. And I don't like to make myself hurt or mad. But I'm slowly forcing myself to re-engage with texts that I dislike and then talk about why, because mm -hmm. I think that's valuable, even though it's super unpleasant. Who do you see as your um, audience? those book reviews I don't know I honestly don't even know like I'm not advertising them too much like I don't I don't have a big social media presence um, mostly at this point if someone's like hey did you like this book I can be like copy paste here read this <laughs> I need like I actually also want to start a more like comprehensive list of books that I like or don't like so whenever so when someone's like hey can you recommend copy paste just read this list I'm like every week I get hey can you recommend I'm just tired of it which I understand why people are coming to me. They're not wrong for coming to me. It just also, like, I do this for a living. I don't feel like doing it when I'm at home. Mm -hmm. um, I can't believe I haven't asked you this. Um, why, what's in your fascination with specifically children's and young adult literature? Um, so when I was first working at Barnes and Noble, I just would work in whatever section they would put me in. I really liked the history section because I really like history, and I really liked the fiction section because I like fiction. And then I started working in, I've always liked kids' books because I was a kid who liked to read, but I never really saw them as a specific art form or genre um, until I started working there after law school. I was eventually put in the kids' section semi-permanently, um, and that's when I actually started liking kids as like a demographic instead of being like scared of them or annoyed by them I just really started loving kids um I think I always like in terms of picture books I think I always had an intuitive understanding of what made a picture book successful versus unsuccessful um but it was really not until I started actually like working at my job that I was able, cause like I would read hundreds of picture books and I would read the same picture. Like what was actually really valuable is that I would, 
in the course of my job, I would read one picture book 10 or 12 times in the course of a week. Like in one day, I might read the same picture book six times in a row because I'll read it to three different classes, split them into two half groups each. Mm. And that much rereading, I started to realize the underlying patterns in them, like how the how the author structured the information or the story so that kids could understand it, how repetition functioned to help kids process the information, how the word choice would like echo back or forward, um, how how an author might put in little jokes for adults to appreciate that kids wouldn't quite get but would still somehow deepen their understanding. Like um mm-hmm. like in Harold and the Purple Crayon, the last one of the last lines is he drew up the covers. And he's like drawing them with his crayon but also drawing up to like pull up. And like mm-hmm. it's just so but it said uh he drew up the covers and then the purple crayon dropped to the floor and Harold dropped off to sleep. Like that repetition of language is so poetic and lovely. Um, and also I think part of it is just like being contrary because like a lot of, one, one person who shall remain nameless once said that kids' books don't count as literature because for the same reason the gourmet chefs don't make baby food. And that means that you don't know anything about children's literature because a good picture book is a unique work of art. Um, one actually Jason Reynolds, a guy who wrote Ghost, was saying how, you know, he's incredibly successful as a young adult and middle grade author, but he's having a beast of a time with a picture book because he says it's like painting the Mona Lisa with half of the colors. Mm-hmm. And it's true, you have to create a story that is as like rich and emotional and like well developed as any novel in less than a thousand words. And Unlike a poem, which can easily be under a thousand words, children have to understand it and like it. Mm. They can like it on a different level than an adult. Like, I don't understand a four-year-old to understand the beauty of drawing up covers and then dropping a crayon and dropping to sleep. But it still gets in there somewhere. Like, for kids to develop sort of a a love of literature, they have to have good literature. Um, And... I mean, I also love picture books because they're so hard. Like, that's why in my, in, like, Explosion of the Poem Factory, I wrote a sonnet and a sestina, because those are really hard, and I like challenges. I like, actually, there's a bit in um, A Wrinkle in Time where Calvin is talking to Mrs. What's-It, one of the witches, I don't remember which one, um, and she says, you know, can you, do you know what a sonnet, can you explain a sonnet to me? And he says, yeah, it's a, it's a strict form with, like, strict meter and rhythm. Um, and she compares life to being like a sonnet, like the, there's, there's strict rules, like you are, you die and you're born and you're trapped inside of a body for all of it. But what you do with that is up to you. And mm. I love the idea of, of having relative freedom within strict confines. I think that's a really fun and difficult challenge. And picture books are that, like picture books are like a sonnet or a sestina or a sestina, like there are rules, there are conventions that you have to obey if you want children to be able to understand and appreciate and enjoy it but also you can say you can talk about whatever you want you just have to figure out a way of breaking it down for them um same way i really enjoy being a teacher because i found that i start to understand concepts better because if i can't explain something to a first grader it means that i don't understand it very well and so it also helped me deepen my understanding of really thorny topics in order to explain them to children and i really I really love that challenge, and I love the challenge of picture books in that way. And that's why I get so frustrated when people, 
when like a when i see mediocre ones out there because like they can be so beautiful um and also like i have so many people who are like hey kyle i have a great idea for a picture book and like cool are you ready to write 50 drafts of something under 800 words does that sound like fun to you good luck like they're really 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 hard and i think that there's a misconception that because they are for children and because they are short they are therefore easy when they are actually fiendishly difficult to do well mm. um but also really 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 fun like i love the challenge of like how can i how can i take this like complex idea and distill it to its like essential piece while also not losing out on the concept of like metaphor and repetition and echoing and like um like a, a deeper level of understanding that kids might not understand but will kind of penetrate their consciousness. That's what I'm trying to do with Aiden and the baby. That's what I really want. Mm. And I think I have. We'll see. Um, I think my last question is one <laughs> of um, more of a personal interest um, about queer and trans literature. It seems like a lot of times in literary analysis of trans literature, specifically ones that include trans characters, trans and queer characters, um, they tend to be used as figures for talking about broader political issues mm -hmm. and it's like they can't be taken as an individual they always must stand in for a political conversation this character will teach you about transphobia or whatever mm -hmm. yeah um what do you think the value of that is does it take away from the art of it all does it take away from the emotional resonance does it is it important to do when you have really well-written and developed character? Um, I think I'm a little bit confused by the question. So you're saying, in, can, can you give me an example of a book where a character is used as a stand-in for, actually, I mean, I can give examples, like, uh, I guess I've seen that before and it always just, it, it always feels like the characters are proclaiming rather than talking. Um, I don't know if that... I feel like I'm not quite understanding your question, but yeah, I'm sorry. I guess um, my question is coming from, not from the writers mm -hmm. um, and the authors, but more from like when groups of people come to analyze the literature and like write reviews on oh, them. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so you're saying when reviewers are looking at a text, they might... Uh, they might put value on the literature and the character insofar as how well it demonstrates, like, political concepts. Oh, 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 geez. Um, yeah, well, I do see one interesting trend now that is in a lot, not just in queer and trans literature, but other parts as well, where there are a lot of people who want a novel to be a prescription for moral living and who want characters to do the right thing. And that if characters do the wrong thing, then they are very quickly punished for it, and they learn the error of their ways. Mm -hmm. um, not just with queer and trans stuff, but with like books that are either that are both like specifically political and also not particularly politically aimed at all. Um, and I super hate that. Like I don't want. I I want. I I like 
I want art to be like messy and difficult. I want it to ask more questions than it answers. Like I think that if a long novel by a grown up has characters who either always do the right thing and explain why they're doing the right thing, or do the wrong thing and then have a total moral 180, that's that's you're just that's just a manifesto. Mm-hmm. You're just telling me what to do instead of asking questions to make me that make me think about it. Um, I'm trying to think of an example I could give that I'm not worried about people yelling at me about for later. Um, like, I feel like there's, okay, okay. There is, hmm. Okay. A lot of times people ask me for good books about gender for kids. And I will be difficult and give them books that don't seem like they're about gender, but obviously are. But um, what they mean is they want to read specific books that are like, this is about a boy who likes to wear a dress, or this is about a non-binary child and their struggles or whatever. But my favorite book to recommend about gender is called Big Mean Mike. It is a picture book by Michelle Newton, and it is about this big, tough dog named Big Mean Mike who keeps finding fluffy little bunnies in his car. And he freaks out because, it's, as he says, big, tough dogs do not hang out with cute little bunnies. Like, what if someone sees me hanging out with you? Like, he's so concerned about his own reputation as being sufficiently masculine that he's worried that being perceived as, like, being nurturing or caretaking towards these fluffy little animals will result in, like, basically gender-based violence against him because he's not, because his masculinity is so... Uh, his mas- his he recognizes that masculinity is incredibly fragile and he's afraid of what will happen if he's deemed as insufficiently masculine by his peers um, and at the end of that book the bunnies end up standing up for him and it's great and then they're friends and he loves them uh, it says Big Mean Mike still did everything in his own big mean way and everywhere he went four tiny fuzzy bunnies went with him so he didn't he learned a lesson he didn't learn to be nice to everybody he still kind of stayed himself but it's a much bigger story about what what is friendship what is caretaking what is masculinity Mm. how in what ways is masculinity isolating we don't see him with any of his friends um and as soon as the friends see him with the bunnies they start to like tease him and he freaks out like I think a book where it was like, and then he learned, it, it never spells any of that out. Like I've asked Michelle about it and she says that she never intended any of that in the text. She just wanted it to be about this cute story about a big dog and his little bunny friends. Um, and I think that what that picture book does so well, or what that piece of literature does so well is that it asks these huge questions that you can have a long discussion about with children, with adults, with anybody. Um, and Mike's moral arc, like his resolution at the end, is still in keeping with his character. He doesn't suddenly get a job at a daycare center and, like, you know, wears pink shirts. Like, his gender doesn't change and his self-perception doesn't change, but he still has a moral arc. Like, he does have a satisfying resolution Mm. Um, because he's, like, a... Because, like the author sees him as, I mean, he's a dog, but right, but as, like, just a, a, 
person who doesn't because people are messy and difficult right we don't learn the error of our ways and suddenly become saints we kind of stay the same and hopefully learn a little bit along the way and i hate it when people want young adult literature especially i see this a lot in young adult literature where people critics and readers often adults want characters to have much more uh righteous arcs like they want them to be better the argument being that like kids like teenagers or kids won't know any better if they don't see this character do the right thing and i don't think that i don't think that there's any book in the world that can make any specific kid not be a real human being like we suck we're mean like ev people hurt people like everyone has prejudices and biases and like everyone makes decisions that hurt other people because they're more convenient for them um and that's just like being a person and like literature isn't going to make you a better person it will hopefully deepen your understanding of what it means to be a person coexisting with others and what other people might be feeling and going through but it's not going to make you better it's just gonna hopefully lend you a deeper understanding of how your experience coexists with others that are foreign or similar to your own um, which might hopefully then guide you in making better decisions in your treatment of people but isn't going to transform you from like an average messy human into like a being of pure light who makes ethical choices under capitalism and never has a messy breakup mm. you know mm. so like i do think the books I, I don't know if i think the books can save the world um i think that they can like help people come they can help some people come to a place where they learn how to do that work but they can't they're not just gonna like fix a person because like we all suck it's fine mm. it's just how it is and um this is more of a small clarification detail oh, yeah. um at the beginning you said that you've been noticing that many books are doing this kind of very deliberate and explicit like moralizing characters that do exposition i don't see that many i there are some books that do it but i'm seeing people complain when books don't do that um is that like more of a recent trend i have no idea okay Pro i doubt it i don't think that anything is new i think that everything has always been the same forever I mean, obviously that's not me, right? Like, there's there's editorial cartoons from the 20s about the dangers of reading, mm. right? Like, mm -hmm. um, I think what's new is that, like, now I can read everybody's opinion immediately without having to look for it because it's on the internet. Mm. So now I know what everyone's saying, whereas 50 years ago, everyone would be saying the same thing, but they weren't. It wasn't, like, on my computer because I didn't have one. And I lied. Here's my last question. Okay. Um, before the interview, you talked about how you like to curate a lot of materials oh, in yeah. your apartment. Yeah, yeah, Um, so I jokingly call my apartment the Dean Street Archives, which is super pretentious and not accurate because it's not really an archive. But, um, for example, I wrote my master's thesis for library school on sex ed books for little kids, like where do babies come from books. So I have 
like 20 different books from like 1954 up through current times that explain where babies come from total kids and i love those because like some of them are so weird and all like there's some that are pretty old that are actually really well done um and i love having like old material that you can't necessarily find elsewhere i have a lot of old like gay history i have i have a lot of old gay and lesbian and trans history like i have a copy of this book called cruising which has turned into a movie that's like the book is out of print um i have yeah just like a lot of old queer books that are hard to find that I like to keep here because I like to show them to people. I love for my friends to read them. Some of them I don't let them leave, leave my house with because I'm like worried about them, but I also like keeping stuff safe-ish. Like I don't have any archival quality, you know, um, like envelopes or, or sleeves or films or anything. But I like, it's, it's just more of a matter of like personal comfort. Like if I have, if I have one copy of this book, then that means that there's at least one copy of this book somewhere. Mm. Um, oh, I have, like I have this one book called the, I think it's just called Christopher Street. It's a collection of articles from a magazine called Christopher Street that I think stopped publication in the mid eighties. Um, and the collection that I have was published in like 1981, I want to say. So it was pre, pre-AIDS. Um, and there's an article in it about one one a person who's like writing about the grief it's called like the lost generation or something he's writing about what it's like to be a younger gay man and not really know his history not really have access to the generation of gay men who came before him because they were like closeted or they're all dead or dying or whatever and he wrote that article like just before aids hit and that's just so chilling to me because like he had no idea what was going to happen in five years so like he was going to be another lost generation and he had no idea um i love materials that reflect gay culture that like that reflect contemporaneous gay culture um because i think it's so easy for that to be lost i think it's so easy for us to assume that our opinions now have always been our opinions, or even that this argument is a new argument that no one's ever had before, or that gay men have always been like this, or lesbians have never been like that, or that no one ever talked about trans people. I love having historical materials that indicate what my life could have been 20 or 30 or 50 years ago. Um, I have a lot of really fun stuff. A lot of it is really like scandalous and it's great. Um, I also have like some like kids books that are out of print that I'm really happy about um, or books that I'm not so worried about being out of print but that I just want to have copies of that I can refer to. Like I have a copy of like a biography of Baird Rested who is one of my heroes. I have a bunch of Studs Terkel books for some reason. Um, I have, like, Joan Nessel, I have a bunch of old trans books. I'm, like, looking at my bookshelf right now. Um, I have some, like, oh, on my top shelf, I have a copy of Mein Kampf, which whenever people come over, I'm like, I'm not a Nazi, I don't like Hitler, I just think that it's important to know what he was, like, I want to have that text so that I know what was being said about me and like Jews in the world 
Um, so, like, I definitely have stuff that I wouldn't say that I necessarily like, but that I think it's important to, like, preserve and preserve and refer to and stuff. Mm. So my apartment is not any kind of official archive, but I still like calling it the archives because that's fun. Is there anything else you'd like to share? I don't even remember what I've said, and I don't know how long we've been sitting here for, so probably, but I can't think of it right now. Okay. So, that's fine, I guess. Thank you so much for sharing the story. I hope that nothing that I've said gets taken out of context and used to defame me on the internet later. Because that would suck. But that might happen. Whatever. (laughs) That's how the internet works. It's not my fault. (laughs) 